You may be seated. Praise the Lord for 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. <laughs> Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you, Lord, for um, every individual who is here today. I pray, God, that you would open the scriptures that we might hear from you. Uh, speak to us, Lord. Touch us that we might receive your power. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. So we have a, a game in our household that I like to play with our girls quite often. Uh, it's uh, probably a game that either you played with your parents when you were a kid, or, or if you have children, maybe you've done this with them. It's just simply wrestling. Uh, throwing kids across the room, thrashing them, seeing how high you can throw them. I've, I'm seeing nods in the back. Uh, this, is, this is good. So uh, oftentimes I'll be, I'll be working upstairs. Uh, my office is in our bedroom presently, and oftentimes our uh, Karis, she'll come upstairs, our youngest, and she'll uh, demand that it's time for Daddy to stop working and to wrestle, which is a great idea. So we wrestle, and there's all these rules that start to come up, right? So uh, if, if she succeeds in pushing me off the bed, then she gets a point. Uh, if I succeed in pushing her off the bed, I get a point. Uh, but as the game goes on, there's more and more rules that kind of get introduced. Like this is, this is what kids do, right? And usually her sisters will come up, and then the rules change a little bit so that uh, no longer do I get a point for pushing one kid off the bed. I have to get all of them off the bed simultaneously, which is actually very, very challenging. Uh, and then there's things like you can't get off the bed voluntarily or, or else, uh, you know, it's hot lava. Uh, some pillows are poisonous, so you can't use these. And so again, as the game goes on, more and more rules go on. Uh, and this is kind of a common theme with kids, right? Uh, if if you remember in PE class, usually the, the favorite days in PE would be when the teacher says that he has a new game that he invented. You know, maybe it's a mashup of hockey and basketball and volleyball or something like that. Uh, or even when we were at the men's retreat and we were playing broomball, uh, we were always kind of tweaking the rules a little bit, like maybe adjusting the time and, and things like that. Well, whenever this happens, there's always an electricity that's in the air, right? There's an excitement. There's laughter and creativity and innovation and just lots and lots of fun when this is happening. But I think in these kinds of moments, something actually much deeper is going on. It's not just about inventing rules and having fun, but I think that the children or, or even us when we're playing broomball, that there's actually a, an experiment going on, an experiment of justice and mercy, uh, an experiment of honor that is going on in those moments. I think that there are moments when something divine within us is quite awake and alert in those moments. Well, right now, we are in the season of Epiphany. And this season began with the celebration of the incarnation of Christ breaking forth into our world when God became man and walked among us. And then we had several weeks where we looked at some of the testimonies of others in Scripture who were pointing to Christ, declaring him to be the Passover lamb. And then we heard from Jesus himself, from Luke chapter 4, when he told us what his mission is to proclaim good news to the poor. And then after that, we saw the calling of, of Peter, and, and then uh, we didn't look at these passages in our Sunday morning, but throughout Luke, you see uh, Jesus calling more disciples to himself. And today, we're going to be looking at kind of the next stage, when Jesus is introducing more rules to the game. 
And Jesus do, is doing something more than just building a game for us. Jesus is building a kingdom. He's taking the language and the laws of the Old Testament, and he's making something that's full of laughter and of joy. And make no mistake about it, you know, there's, these are certainly very serious texts that we read this morning. There's a lot of blessings, a lot of woes. But I still wonder if there's a childlike enthusiasm, if there's still a thrill that's kind of buzzing through the air, through the crowd of that day. Jesus is also calling forth themes of justice and mercy and honor and even redemption. All of those themes are woven throughout these blessings and these woes. So like I said, it's more than just a game. This is a kingdom that should excite us all. So let's turn to chapter 6, if you haven't already, your bulletin. So just to provide a little bit of context here, uh, we didn't include this in the reading, but Jesus had just spent the entire evening in prayer, which whenever Jesus does that, that means that something big is about to happen, right? So he spends the entire evening in prayer, and then after that, uh, the next morning, he goes forth and he calls his disciples. He descends from the mountain that he had been praying at. And if this reminds us of Moses, uh, it should. It means that we're paying attention in our Old Testament class. But what's happening here is Jesus is descending down the mountain, fresh out of prayer, just like Moses descending down Sinai, delivering the law. And just like Moses came, delivering to us blessing and curses, so Jesus is coming down the mountain as well. And the text opens there in verse 20. It says that Jesus came down and stood on a level place. The idea is that Jesus is standing on this big open field, this plain, right? And he's coming to minister to his people, to heal them, and deliver to them a new set of rules. And I love the scene that's, that Luke portrays to us here. People are coming from all over the place. We've got Jews coming from Jerusalem. We've got gentle, Gentiles coming from this. I'm sure they were very gentle as well. But Gentiles coming from the seacoast. And there's everyone in between who is coming. And this is a message that's not just for the Jews, but it's for everybody. What Luke is doing here, Luke the author, he's trying to portray to us that the entire world is gathering to come and to hear from Jesus, to experience the blessings that come from him. So there's three groups of people who are kind of here on the field with Jesus. You've got the 12 apostles who had just been called. You've got the crowd of disciples, those who are, are followers of Jesus. And then you have this great multitude of people. Anytime you hear that phrase, the multitude of people in Luke, it's kind of a symbol of the entire world. All these people are coming to hear and to receive from Jesus. And all of them are on the field. Well, Jesus is modeling to his apostles in this moment the kind of ministry that he's soon going to be empowering them themselves to be doing. Now, I think that this is actually, this is kind of a, a little aside, but I think that this is a, a really good subtle reminder of the posture of the church. You know, we don't just exist for our own sake, for our own disciples, but we also exist for the multitude. And this is why here at Restoration, for example, our second hire, which this isn't the case with every church plant, but our second hire is a pastor of outreach, right? Yes, okay. <laughs> so our second hire here is the pastor of outreach because we, this is what happens when I stray from my notes, the pages flip all over the place. But Molly, our pastor of outreach, is our second hire because we believe that the church doesn't only benefit ourselves, but we exist for the benefit of the great multitude. It's why we're involved in things like prison fellowship, like refugee life ministry, like Together for Good, 
like Interchange and Gutter Punk Coffee. And right now, these are all little tiny partnerships that we have with these organizations. But we hope, the hope is that as our church grows, we'll be able to be in more and deeper relationship with these local organizations. Part of our mission is to bless our neighborhood, not just to bless ourselves. And that's because we see that that is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing throughout the Gospels. So we follow Christ, who enters the field and heals many of their diseases and their various troubles and afflictions. Well, Jesus Christ, his ministry isn't only one of deed, but it's one of truth as well. Jesus not only walks the walk, but he talks the talk. He clarifies things for us. He gives us instructions. And so we see in verse 20 that Jesus lifts his eyes upon the disciples. He looks at those who've left everything to follow him. And he shares with them blessings and woes as well. Now, with most lists in the Bible, uh, each one of these statements, and there's eight of them, each one of them could stand to be a sermon in and of itself, right? But rather than uh, go through each of those, which maybe we'll do that someday, that'd be a really fun series. Um, but I just want to kind of present a, a general theme of this passage. So like I said, there's eight statements here. You'll see that there's four blessings followed by four woes. And you probably caught how they're paired with each other, right? So you've got blessed are you who are poor. And that pairs with woe to you who are rich. So each one of these kind of dovetail with another. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear these things, they're immediately piercing, right? It's pretty jostling, right? I, I get a little uncomfortable and maybe shift in my chair a little bit. Because these blessings and woes, they're, they're piercing to us. They grip our hearts. And that's, the way that, that's what they're supposed to do. Which is pretty remarkable, right? That Jesus could say these things 2,000 years ago to shock his audience. And now here we are today still being shocked by these same words. Our hearts are still stirred. Like what a testimony to the, the living power of the Holy Scriptures, right? So let's look at these blessings. So blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are reviled. You see, what Jesus is saying here is he's, he's extending his purpose. He's saying what I said back in Luke chapter 4, the mission of God to proclaim the good news to the poor, I'm still doing that now. He's clarifying, he's reminding to his people what his ministry is. That he's here to proclaim good news to the poor, to those who have absolutely nothing. And this is a message that extends throughout the Gospel of Luke, extends throughout the New Testament, and extends even to us here today. We are standing in this crowd as well on this mighty, on this large plane. So maybe you're here today. You're totally exhausted. You're totally at the end of your ropes. Maybe you're, going home, you're scared to go home and look into an empty refrigerator. Maybe you find, your, maybe you find yourself surrounded by heartbreak and disappointment uh, around every corner. I think what we hear here this morning in this text is that God sees you and he speaks blessing over us. You know, no longer are the ones who are picked last and the ones who lose every game stuck in their defeats. God is saying here that we finally get to experience the taste of victory. He sees our weeping. And in the way that only a redeeming God can, he takes our weeping and he flips it and he turns it into moments of laughter for us. So you may have noticed in our prayers of the people, um, we've been praying for someone. His name is uh, Soren Dirkstra. And Soren is a three-year-old. Uh, he's a friend of members of our family, or of our, of our congregation. He's a three-year-old who's been battling cancer um, for quite a while. 
And last week, they found out that in spite of a lot of the chemo that's been going on, in spite of, in spite of a lot of the experimental treatments that's been going on, uh, they've discovered another brain tumor inside of little Soren's um, head. And as you can imagine, the family is incredibly devastated in this moment. And they're facing yet another round of surgery, which actually just happened a few days ago. Thankfully, it was successful. But now they're entering into a season of recovery, and they're working with the doctors to try to figure out what the next plan of attack will be for them. But yet through this, the, the Dirkstra family is still able to find moments of beauty and joy. In the midst of the chaos, they're finding remarkable moments where light bursts forth into this very dark moment. You can go to their Caring Bridge website and read things like this. Soren's laughter right now is quick and infectious. His sweetness knows no boundaries. He has a bond with his older sister that cannot break. And the richness of these discoveries, they will guide us through these terrifying times ahead. Yes, this beauty will make our sadness hurt even more, but it will also fuel our love for him and for one another. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that for this family, everything is, is back to normal. I'm sure they would trade their circumstances in a heartbeat. But what I am saying is that our king, the suffering servant, the crucified Messiah, gives mighty invisible blessings of beauty and love and laughter to those who have nothing. He comes to give good news to the poor. Now, we could certainly leave it at that this morning, but Jesus also gives us four woes as well. Jesus says, Woe to those with large portfolios. Woe to those who vacation in Fiji but never visit those in prison. Woe to those who remodel their home without sheltering the weak. Woe to those whose refrigerators are stocked, who frequent four-star restaurants but never gather the lonely around their table. Woe to the comedians, those who smirk at injustice, who laugh at sin, and who mock the downtrodden. Woe to those who have a thousand followers on Instagram, those who meticulously curate their profile, who pursue all the likes and promote the brand of self. You see, whether we're living in the first century, the 21st century, or the 51st century, these woes are incredibly applicable to us. And the rules of the game, the rules of society, they haven't changed at all through this time. The rules of society are always the same. We measure success by how much money we have, by how much power we have, and how well guarded our reputation is. And what Jesus is doing here in these woes is he looks through these rules of success that our society has established, and he, bo he declares boldly to us that the game that we are playing is a complete farce. These pursuits will enslave you, Jesus says. You will be chained to their demands. There's kind of two ways that we can hear this, I think. One way is we can hear this and we can feel quite beat up and condemned, right? We can say, wow, Jesus is really coming strong at us right now. And I don't want to take away from that. This is meant to stir us and convict us. But don't forget that these words are also a tremendous grace to us. There is mercy in here. Jesus is, is warning us. He's telling us, don't put your hope in these measures of success that the world gives us. He says, come and follow me. 
the rule of my kingdom is far kinder, Jesus says. And I'm not going to promise you health or riches or things like that, but what Christ is telling us this morning is that what he has to give us is far greater than anything that the world could ever provide. One of my favorite authors is Henry Nouwen. Uh, Henry Nouwen wrote dozens and dozens of books. I think he was like 36 or something like this. And they're very easy to read. They're all very small, and the language is really easy to dive into. They're, they're surprisingly easy and quick to read. Uh, my favorite book of his is Wounded Healer, so if you haven't read it yet, uh, add it to your Amazon list and go pick up Wounded Healer. In fact, there's a lot of ideas in that book that kind of led to the, the reason why we named Restoration uh, what we did. Well, anyway, Henry Nouwen, he was a Catholic priest, and he was also a psychologist who, over the course of his career, he taught at Notre Dame, he taught at Harvard, he taught at Yale, and Nouwen had what a lot of us strive for in our li entire lives. He had financial uh, stability. He had intellectual interlocutors. And he had a reputation that spanned the globe. People sought after his wisdom. But after a career of accomplishments and accolades, Nouwen actually found himself not in a place of security and gladness and delight, but he actually found himself in a place of, of just turmoil in his soul, a place of, that he describes as a great darkness. He says this, I found myself praying poorly, living isolated from others, and very much preoccupied with frivolous issues. Can you identify with that a little bit? Maybe externally it feels like everything is going on. You know, others would look to you and say, hey, great job, you know, and pat you on the back. But on the inside, maybe there's this sense of restlessness, a sense of loneliness, and perhaps even a disconnect from God himself. Well, Henry continues and says this, he says, everyone was telling me that I was doing really well, but something inside me was saying that my success was actually putting my soul in danger. Well, through a series of events in Henry Nouwen's life, uh, God actually called him out of the world of academia and brought him to a community called La Arc, a community for people with mental disabilities. So God moved Henry from this from a place where he was teaching some of the world's most brightest and elite, teaching people who desired to rule the world and put him in a place where people could barely finish their sentences, a place where society had no use for these people who met here. Can you imagine what kind of change that would have been from Henry, moving from one of these places to the other? I'm sure that adjustment was very interesting, right? Well, he tells stories of the friends who we, who we met in this community. He tells the story of his friend Bill, who often disagreed with things from his sermon, uh, and Bill wouldn't wait until the end of the service to actually tell Henry about his disagreements, which you all are being very merciful to me today, so thank you for holding your criticisms until the end. Or Henry also tells the story of when he boarded a plane to go to a speaking engagement uh, in another country, and as soon as he arrived and got to his room, his phone call rang, and it was another person from the community who was calling him, saying, Henry, you never said goodbye to me. I miss you. You need to come back home right now. You see, these people whose minds are very fragile, they often speak with a clarity of the heart that was very illuminating and helpful for Henry. Henry says this, they teach me about joy. They teach me about peace and love and care. And they teach me how to pray again. Things that I never could have learned in the academy but most of all, they give me a glimpse of God's first love. 
And I just absolutely love that. You see, Henry Nouwen's life was turned upside down, turned upside down. He, Jesus Christ walked onto the field of Henry's soul. And Jesus lifted his eyes and looked upon Henry and saw what was going on and changed the plan of what was taking place. So what about you this morning? What about you? Are there places in life where the Lord is stepping onto the field of your soul and looking around? You know, maybe you're like Soren's family, right? Just kind of filled with despair and sorrow and weeping. And maybe you're in need of Jesus to break through all of that and to give you glimpses of his kingdom, glimpses of beauty and of laughter again. Or maybe like Henry Nouwen, you see these places where your soul is perhaps in danger. You see that you're playing by the rules of the world, the, rule, the world's rules of success. And maybe you need Jesus to step into your life and give you a completely new playbook, a completely new set of rules. You see, friends, these blessings and woes, these are words of grace to us. And they're meant to put us into contact of Christ, into the arms of Christ, to fling us into his embrace. So of this passage, um, probably my favorite verse is there in verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch Jesus, for power was coming out from him, and he healed them all. Friends, Jesus Christ is here today. He is here today. His spirit is here in this room. He is present through the song. He is present through the scriptures. And most of all, he is present here at Holy Communion. And Jesus Christ wants to touch us this morning. In a few moments, we're going to gather here to the table. We're going to eat the bread and drink the wine. And here in our tradition, we believe that this is spiritual food. This is more than just a memory of what Christ did, that there is actual spiritual nourishment that takes place in the bread and the wine. These are moments in which Christ reaches out from heaven and touches us and heals our soul. And that's not to say that we're going to have warm, fuzzy feelings every Sunday when we come forward and receive, but it does mean that this is a grace in which God is ministering to us. So my prayer for us is that as you come forward this morning, you would be touched by Jesus Christ that power would come through, um, through the bread and the wine and touch your soul, that you would be invigorated to go out into the world in power and in blessing. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.